The Shakespeare Society and PlayShakespeare.com presents Shakespeare Talks. Shakespeare Talks. Let me introduce Michael Sexton, the executive and artistic director of the Shakespeare Society. Have fun tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Anne. Um, in rehearsal the other day, I was listening to the great, was this the face that launched the thousand ships speech from Dr. Faustus? And I was reminded of hearing Eric Clapton, the great rock and blues guitarist, speak about the first time he heard Jimi Hendrix play the guitar. He thought, right, give up now. He's done it all. <clears throat> Marlowe's contemporaries listening to his ravishing language may well have thought the same. Fortunately for us, Shakespeare didn't give up when he first heard Marlowe's work, but tonight's program is designed to show just how profoundly it affected him. It's part of our mission at the Shakespeare Society to encourage and support the work of adventurous, intelligent theater artists like Jesse Berger in the Red Bull Theater, so we're really happy uh, that they agreed to help us out tonight. I'm also happy to welcome this fantastic cast and the commentator, the great uh, Christopher Evan Welsh, who played Richard III for us uh, at our History Girls evening a season or two ago. Also, he played a fantastic Mercutio in Central Park a few summers back, a hilarious Rodrigo down at the public, and he returns to play a few more scoundrels for us tonight. And speaking <laughs> of scoundrels, Matthew Rauch has played a few in his time. Uh, many of you will remember his magnificently malevolent Vindice in Red Bull's gloriously seedy production of The Revenger's Tragedy, as well as the grasping Mortimer in their recent production of Marlowe's Edward II. And I'm happy to say that John Douglas Thompson is back with us after participating in last season's finale with the Shakespeare Society, which was a collaboration with the New York City Ballet called Dances with Shakespeare. He's currently enjoying a banner year following last season's triumphant Othello at the Theater for New Audience with this season's triumphant performance as Brutus Jones in The Emperor Jones at the Irish Rep. He too has performed with Red Bull. Uh, he was in the Jacobean Bloodfest, Women Beware Women. Uh, he's an artist who truly deserves all of the attention he is currently getting, and so we're so happy to have him back with us. And we've been asking James Shapiro to return to our stage for years now, years in which he has only risen in the world's regard, especially with the publication of uh, 2005's 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, <coughs> a book which you really must read if you haven't read yet. It's really a great read, and he continues to be one of the most popular professors at my alma mater, uh, Columbia University. He was generous enough to share with me some portions of his forthcoming book on the dreaded and so-called authorship controversy called Contested Will, and I can assure you he lays waste to a lot of nonsense with characteristic wit, passion, and the breathtaking scope of his knowledge. So, without further ado, we the Shakespeare Society, in association with our friends at the Red Bull Theater, are thrilled to present four men who represent the very best in their respective fields. Christopher Evan Welch, Matthew Rauch, John Douglas Thompson, and James Shapiro. Enjoy. Good evening. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Anne. I was delighted when Michael asked me to participate in tonight's event, and I'm deeply, deeply honored to share the stage with such remarkable actors as John and Matthew and Christopher. Uh, rehearsing with them for this event was, uh, for an academic and uh, avid theatergoer, a huge thrill. And it also confirmed for me the incredible vitality of Shakespeare and the works of Shakespeare's contemporaries 
uh, on stage in New York of late and uh, in the coming year or so. The Red Bull, Theater for New Audience, Classic Stage, the Public Theater, Lincoln Center. Uh, there's just an enormous amount of energy, and I think tonight you'll see an enormous uh, uh, degree of talent uh, that I've never experienced in decades of theater going in New York City. Uh, so it's very, very exciting for me. What we have planned for you is something of a, of a five-act drama, and it might be useful to begin with something of a prologue. The story begins in 1564, when both Marlowe and Shakespeare were born. Like almost every professional playwright of the day, both Marlowe and Shakespeare came from the middling classes. One was the eldest son of a cobbler, that's Marlowe, the other also a firstborn son, son of a glover. Both grew up outside of London, one in Canterbury, the other in Stratford-upon-Avon. But their paths would cross for the first time in the very late 1580s, when each in his late 20s had found his way to the metropolis, and it would change, of course, English drama and literature for the next 400 years. That Marlowe and Shakespeare were aware of each other by the early 1590s, there can be little doubt. It was a small theatrical community, they didn't live far from each other in London, and there's even a chance that Shakespeare may have acted in one or more of Marlowe's plays, especially Edward II, as a member of the Lord Pembroke's Manor or another company that was performing in London at this time. That bit of theater history is hazy, and we don't know for sure. We also can't speak with much confidence about their personal relationship. And before Marlowe's untimely and violent death in 1593, no contemporary puts them together in the same room at the same time. So as tempting as it is to speculate about their personal interactions, I think it's dangerous to give too free reign to one's fantasies, unless, of course, you're making a popular film like Shakespeare in Love, in which Shakespeare, as you all remember, played wonderfully by Ray Fiennes, jealously has his rival, Marlowe, who was brilliantly played by Rupert Everett, killed off, although he only does so after getting his far more confident rival's help in plotting his new tragedy. If you remember, it was first called Ethel, the pirate's daughter, then the savvy Marlowe came along and said, change that to Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Now, if we know nothing about what they thought of each other personally or how they interacted in daily life, we do know a great deal about what matters, which is how they responded to each other as writers, their rivalry, their mutual influence, and its effect especially on Shakespeare's work. With the help of three leading actors, we'll explore, using the playwright's own words, what can be recovered about their literary rivalry between 18, 1587 or so and May 1593 when Marlowe was killed over the reckoning in an inn in Deptford after spending the day with some shady Elizabethan characters. We'll then take the story forward up until 1600 or so when it seems Marlowe's impact on Shakespeare, or to put it another way, Shakespeare's deep engagement with Marlowe had run its course. And as for those here tonight who believe or who want to believe in a scenario even more fanciful and imaginative than that which is offered in Shakespeare and Love, and that's the fantasy that Marlowe wasn't killed that day in 1593, but despite what the coroner's report and burial records say, another man was killed 
and substituted for him, and Marlowe was spirited off alive to the continent where he went on to write all of Shakespeare's plays. <laughs> all I can say to that, and it's, it's actually not all that well known, is long before anybody first argued that Marlowe wrote Shakespeare's plays, and nobody really did that until about 1900 or so, back in 1819 in the British publication, The Monthly Review, the argument was first made that Shakespeare had written all of Marlowe's plays. <laughs> so if there's one thing I, I really hope you take away tonight, other than the pleasure of hearing great actors speak lines from Marlowe and Shakespeare's plays and poetry, it's that neither claim is seriously imaginable. Marlowe wrote Marlowe, Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, and if we listen closely, we'll hear how great a gulf separates their styles and sensibilities. Enough prologue, let's turn to our five-act drama and to the actors themselves. The year is 1587. The scene, London. The play being staged, Tamburlaine the Great. Soon it would be called Tamburlaine Part One, and there'd be a Tamburlaine Part Two, I think tonight will be a good exercise for all of us to try to hear or imagine what Marlowe must have sounded like and how remarkable and powerful his voice was, not just for Shakespeare, but for all playgoers in Elizabethan London. And you'll hear again and again the characteristic Marlowian style, that is to say, that verse line which is a kind of carved, end-stopped line. And it's, it's stuffed with high, astounding terms and classical allusions. And these individual lines are strung together as if they were pearls into long verse paragraphs. Marlowe had just finished his time at Cambridge University uh, when he wrote Tamburlaine, and he knew just how radical a break his poetry was from the kind of poetry playgoers were used to hearing. And in case you didn't know it, he would introduce Tamburlaine with a prologue that underscored just this point. This is how the prologue to that play begins. From jigging veins of rhyming mother wits and such conceits as clownage keeps in pay will lead you to the stately tent of war where you shall hear the Scythian Tamburlaine threatening the world with high astounding terms and scourging kingdoms with his conquering sword. The scene is Tamburlaine. The speaker, Tamburlaine as well. Act four, scene two of that play. John. The chiefest god, first mover of that sphere, enchased with thousands ever shining lamps, will sooner burn the glorious frame of heaven then it should so conspire my overthrow. But villain, thou that wishest this to me, fall prostrate on the low disdainful earth and be the footstool of great Tamburlaine, that I may rise into my royal throne. Base villain vassal, slave to Tamburlaine, unworthy to embrace or touch the ground that bears the honor of my royal weight. Stoop, villain, stoop, stoop, for so he bids that may command thee piecemeal to be torn or scattered like the lofty cedar trees struck with the voice of thundering Jupiter. Now clear the triple region of the air 
and let the majesty of heaven behold their scourge and terror tread on emperors. Smile, stars that reigned at my nativity and dim the brightness of their neighbor lamps. Disdain to borrow light of Cynthia, for I, the chiefest lamp of all the earth, first rising in the east with mild aspect, but fix it now in the meridian line, will send up fire to your turning spheres and cause the sun to borrow light of you. My sword struck fire from his coat of steel, even in Bithynia when I took this Turk as when a fiery exhalation wrapped in the bowels of a freezing cloud fighting for passage makes the welkin crack and cast a flash of lightning to the earth. But ere I march to wealthy Persia or leave Damascus and the Egyptian fields, as was the fame of Clymen's brain-sick son that almost brent the axle tree of heaven so shall our swords, our lances, our shot fill all the air with fiery meteors. Then, when the sky shall wax as red as blood, it shall be said, I made it red myself to make me think of naught but blood and war. If I were an Elizabethan playwright listening to that, I'd be very, very nervous. Ben Johnson gave it a name, and it's been one that has stuck. He called it Marlowe's Mighty Line. Other playwrights tried to piggyback on Marlowe's success, writing their own heroical histories with strutting, overreaching, vaunting figures, none of them quite up to the pitch and power of Marlowe's. Shakespeare typically and uh, characteristically, I should say, went in another direction. Rather than trying to write plays about overreachers like Tamburlaine, his first serious plays, uh, that is to say, histories, there are fleeting echoes of Marlowe's lines. But when he created his first two-part history play, which has come down to us as the second and third parts of Henry VI, Instead of a strong king, he chose to create a weak and peace-loving king rather than this militant and vaunting one. And it would be a decade before he'd finally circle back and take a shot at trying Marlowe's high, astounding terms as a very mature playwright in a much later history play, Henry V. Now, I'm sure that Shakespeare wasn't the first to see the connections between these two figures, Henry V, England's greatest, most martial king, and Tamburlaine, the strutting figure of the stage. And in a moment, we're going to hear Henry V's speech before the gates of Harfleur, reenacting, if you will, Tamburlaine's threat of rape and destruction at the siege of Damascus. When you hear these lines recited, I want you to not only hear the Marlovian in them, but I also want you to think about how talented an actor Henry V is. We already know him as Prince Hal, as a man who could drink with any tinker in his own language. And he shows in the course of Henry V how deftly he can play many roles and speak in many styles. But in the speech we're about to hear, he shows he has mastered the terrifying style of Marlowe's scourge of God 
the man who would pitch his tents outside a city, this is Tamburlaine, first white tents, and if there would be no surrender, then red tents, and then finally, in fury, black tents, which meant utter annihilation. We may say that Henry gives this code red speech in a Tamburlainian vein, and it is going to be pitch perfect. How yet resolves the governor of the town? This is the latest parl we will admit. Therefore, to our best mercy, give yourselves, or like to men proud of destruction, defy us to our worst. For as I am a soldier, a name that in my thoughts becomes me best, if I begin the battery once again, I will not leave the half-achieved Harfleur till in her ashes she lies buried. The gates of mercy shall be all shut up, and the fleshed soldier, rough and hard of heart, in liberty of bloody hand, shall range with conscience wide as hell, mowing like grass your fresh fair virgins and your flowering infants. What is it then to me if impious war, arrayed in flames like to the prince of fiends, do with his smirched complexion all fell feet and linked to waste and desolation? What is to me when you yourselves are cause if your pure maidens fall into the hand of hot and forcing violation? What reign can hold licentious wickedness when down the hill he holds his fierce career? We may, as bootless, spend our vain command upon the enraged soldiers in their spoil as send precepts to the Leviathan to come ashore. Therefore, you men of Harfleur, take pity of your town and of your people, whilst yet my soldiers are in my command. Whilst yet the cool and temperate winds of grace o'erflows the filthy and contagious clouds of deadly murder, spoil, and villainy. If not, why in a moment look to see the blind and bloody soldier with foul hand defile the locks of your shrill shrieking daughters, your fathers, taken by the silver beards and their most reverend heads dashed to the walls, your naked infants spitted upon pikes, whilst the mad mothers with their howls confused do break the clouds as did the wives of Jewry at Herod's bloody hunting slaughtermen. What say you? Will you yield and this avoid, or guilty in defense be thus destroyed? That was great. I love that speech. <laughs> it was so much fun working with these guys and just seeing them take over. You know, it's one thing to read and teach this <clears throat> stuff and read it in a study. It's another really to hear. To hear really the Marlowe through the Shakespeare in that speech is, is extraordinary to me. Act two. Act one really was about Tamburlaine and that heroical figure. Marlowe left us seven plays. He did a lot more than just high astounding terms or that daring God out of heaven stuff. In this second act, we're going to talk a little bit or explore and hear a little bit more about Shakespeare's response and really appropriation of what T.S. Eliot first called the, the savage farce in Marlowe. 
there are many people who think, my, my mentor David Bevington included, that Marlowe couldn't do comedy. Marlowe could do comedy. He just couldn't do Shakespearean comedy. Marlowe did Marlowian comedy. The story of the Jew of Malta, printed for the first time in 1633, and it is a superb and exciting play. And it is a play that introduces one of the, the, the Marlowian devices we'll see a lot of tonight. Were we doing Marlowe, Johnson, and Shakespeare, we would see this imported into Johnson's plays. That is the sidekick. Marlowe loved to have his protagonists play off against the sidekick. Shakespeare's protagonists, especially the outsiders, tend to be loners, solo, solo operators. But the first scene we're going to do today is, is a terrific and quite hilarious scene from the Jew of Malta. It's from uh, Act Two, Scene Two of that play. And the, the two characters involved are, are Barabbas, the, the Jew, the rich Jew of Malta, and uh, a man who will become his sidekick, a, uh, a Moor, a slave named Ithamore, who Barabbas has, has uh, purchased in the slave mart. And they're sizing each other up, and Barabbas wants to make sure he's chosen a good villainous sidekick for himself. It is a great scene. It's comic. It's not funny. Hast thou no trade? Then listen to my words, and I will teach thee that shall stick by thee. First, be thou void of these affections. Compassion. Love. Vain hope and heartless fear. Be moved at nothing. See thou pity none. But to thyself smile when the Christians moan. O oh, brave master, I worship your nose for this. As for myself, I walk abroad o' nights and kill sick people groaning under walls. Sometimes I go about and poison wells. And now and then, to cherish Christian thieves, I am content to lose some of my crowns that I may, walking in my gallery, see them go pinioned along by my door. Hmm. Being young, I studied physic and began to practice first upon the Italian. There, I enriched the priests with burials and always kept the sexton's arms in use with digging graves and wringing dead men's knells. And after that, I was an engineer. And in the wars twixt France and Germany, under pretense of helping Charles V, slew friend and enemy with my stratagems. Then after that, I was an usurer. And with exhorting, cousining, forfeiting, and tricks belonging unto brokery, I filled the jails with bankrupts in a year. And with young orphans, planted hospitals, and every moon made some or other mad, and now and then one hang himself for grief, pinning upon his breast a long great scroll how I with interest tormented him. But mark how I am blessed for plaguing them. I have as much coin as will buy the town. But tell me now, how hast thou spent thy time? Faith, master, in setting Christian villages on fire. <laughs> Chaining of eunuchs, binding galley slaves, 
One time I was an ostler in an inn, and in the nighttime secretly would I steal to travelers' chambers and there cut their throats. <laughs> Once at Jerusalem, where the pilgrims kneeled, I strewed powder on the marble stones, and therewithal their knees would rankle, so that I have laughed a good to see the cripples go limping home to Christendom on stilts. <laughs> Why, this is something. <laughs> Make account of me as thy fellow. We are villains both, both circumcised, <laughs> we hate Christians both. Be true and secret, thou shalt want no gold. Those of us who teach Shakespeare and Marlowe invariably pair the Jew of Malta with the merchant of Venice but it's probably the wrong pairing. It's not to say each one hasn't written a great Jew play, but the, <laughs> and, and they have, and they're, they're quite different. But the play in which the Jew of Malta made the greatest difference in Shakespeare's canon is a considerably earlier play. We don't really know the date of it, but I do know that the presence of the Jew of Malta is powerfully felt in this Shakespeare's first attempt at tragedy. And I don't think it was an entirely beneficial influence. Shakespeare's Titus is, is, to my mind, a play that strains a little bit from all its attempts to show that it can take on rivals, classical rivals, contemporary rivals. We all know that he's taking on Ovid's story, and Ovid's heroine is raped and has her tongue cut out. Shakespeare adds to this by having his heroine have uh, her tongue cut out and her hands lopped off after she's raped. He even outdoes Seneca's Thyestes when he has Tamara, the villainess of the story, gorge on her own two sons, the ones who had raped Lavinia. He struggles with Virgil, he struggles with Ovid, and most of all, he struggles to overcome Marlowe in this play. And in, in the scene we're about to hear, which is, which is a wonderful scene, it's between Lucius, who is the son of Titus Andronicus, who will ascend to the throne at the end of the play, and the villainous Aaron. And Aaron, as you'll soon hear, is a direct descendant of Marlowe's Barabbas. A worthy goth, this is the incarnate devil that robbed Andronicus of his good hand. This is the pearl that pleased your empress's eye, and here is the base fruit of her burning lust. Say, wall-eyed slave, whither wouldst thou convey this growing image of thy fiend-like face? Touch not the boy. He is of royal blood, too like the sire for ever being good. First hang the child that he may see it sprawl, a sight to vex the father's soul withal. Get me a ladder. Lucius, save the child and bear it from me to the empress. If thou do this, I'll show thee wondrous things that highly may advantage thee to hear. Say on. And if it please me which thou speakest, thy child shall live and I will see it nourished. And if it please thee, why, well, I assure thee, Lucius, twill vex thy soul to hear what I shall speak. For I must talk of murders, rapes, 
and massacres, acts of black night, abominable deeds, complots of mischief, treason, villainies, ruthful to hear, yet piteously performed. And this shall all be buried in my death, unless thou swear to me my child shall live. Tell on thy mind, I say thy child shall live. Swear that he shall, and then I will begin. Who should I swear by? Thou believest no God. That granted, how canst thou believe an oath? What if I do not? As indeed I do not. Yet for I know thou art religious, and hast a thing within thee called conscience, with twenty popish tricks and ceremonies, which I have seen thee careful to observe. Therefore I urge thy oath, for that I know an idiot holds his bauble for a god, and keeps the oath which by that god he swears. To that I'll urge him. Therefore thou shalt vow by that same god, whatever god so it be, that thou adorest and hast in reverence to save my boy, to nourish and bring him up, or else I were discover not to thee. Even by my God, I swear to thee, I will. First know thou, I begot him on the Empress. Oh, most insatiate and luxurious woman! Tut, Lucius, this was but a deed of charity to that which thou shalt hear of me anon. <laughs> Twas her two sons that murdered Bassianus. They cut thy sister's tongue, and ravished her, and cut her hands, and trimmed her as thou sawest. Oh, detestable villain! Callst thou that trimming? Why, she was washed, and cut, and trimmed, and twas trim sport for them which had the doing. Oh, barbarous, beastly villains like thyself! Indeed. I was their tutor to instruct them. That coddling spirit had they from their mother, as sure a card as ever won the set. That bloody mind, I think they learned of me as true a dog as ever fought at head. Well, let my deeds be witness of my worth. I trained thy brethren to that guileful hole where the dead corpse of Bassianus lay. I wrote the letter that thy father found and hid the gold within that letter mentioned, confederate with the queen and her two sons. And what not done that thou hast caused to rue wherein I had no stroke of mischief in it? I played the cheater for thy father's hand. And when I had it, drew myself apart and almost broke my heart with extreme laughter. I pried me through the crevice of a wall when for his hand he had his two sons' heads, beheld his tears, and laughed so heartily that both mine eyes were rainy like to his. And when I told the empress of this sport, she sounded almost at my pleasing tale, and for my tidings gave me twenty kisses. What canst thou say all this and never blush? I, like a black dog, as the saying is. And thou not sorry for these heinous deeds? I, that I had not done a thousand more. Even now I curse the day, and yet I think few come within the compass of my curse, wherein I did not some notorious ill, as kill a man, or else devise his death. Ravish a maid or plot the way to do it, accuse some innocent and forswear myself, set deadly enmity between two friends, make poor men's cattle break their necks, set fire on barns and haystacks in the night, and bid the owners quench them with their tears. Oft have I digged up dead men from their graves and set them upright at their dear friend's door, even when their sorrows almost was forgot and on their skins as on the bark of trees have with my knife carved in Roman letters, let not your sorrow die though I am dead. But I have done 
a thousand dreadful things as willingly as one would kill a fly. And nothing grieves my heartily indeed but that I cannot do ten thousand more. If there be devils, would I were a devil to live and burn in everlasting fire so I might have your company in hell but to torment you with my bitter tongue. The Jew of Malta's influence on Titus is, is, to my mind, a profound influence, but it wasn't a solitary influence. I think that the darkness of Marlowe's comic vision, and for that matter, the darkness of his, of his tragic vision, led the young Shakespeare in a direction he wasn't willing or interested in repeating. And it's, it's notable that uh, this experiment in an early tragedy didn't lead to a string of tragedies on Shakespeare's part. That it would, unless you count Richard II or uh, Richard III as, as, as tragedies, or even the Henry VI plays, it would really be a number of years before Shakespeare returned to tragedy through comedy in Romeo and Juliet, and then really a decade after uh, Marlowe's great plays, great tragedies like the Jew of Malta, would Shakespeare begin his great run of tragedies with Julius Caesar and Hamlet and Othello, which is to say that Marlowe's influence was powerful, but it was not only and not always beneficial to Shakespeare. The third act of our program tonight takes us to the poetry. It's a, a truth universally acknowledged that Shakespeare emerged as a finer playwright than Marlowe, though I suppose if Shakespeare had died of plague in 1593 and Marlowe not been killed in that inn in Deford, we'd probably be sitting here at the invitation of the Marlowe Society rather than the Shakespeare Society, <laughs> and the course of English literature would have taken a stunningly different turn. As dramatists, perhaps, Shakespeare had the last word, but as poets, especially as lyric poets, they were evenly matched, and to my mind, uh, given what Marlowe has left us, I think Marlowe in this category has the slight edge. Each was a poet in a path-breaking way. Marlowe translated Ovid's elegies in a version that still hasn't been surpassed. He never turned his hand, as Shakespeare did, to writing sonnets, something not just Shakespeare, but virtually every poet in the period did. Marlowe wrote a number of gorgeous lyrics, and other writers quite immediately responded to them. Great writers and lesser writers, John Donne, Walter Raleigh, Henry Petal was among the lesser ones, uh, Chapman. Everybody tried to respond to what was seen as really an extraordinary lyric quality in Marlowe. It's likely that after Plague closed the theaters in, uh, in 1593, uh, some months before Marlowe's death, each poet, Marlowe and Shakespeare, turned his hand to writing these poems. We don't know which poem came first, Venus and Adonis or Hero and Leander, and scholars have been wrestling over that question for some time. There's a wonderful, wonderful description in the opening lines of Marlowe's poem that refers to Hero and Leander. And I can't help but imagine a moment when Shakespeare might have been sitting in at an early reading or hearing of Marlowe's great poem. And he heard the following lines. At Sestos, heroes dwelt, hero the fair, whom young Apollo courted for her hair. 
and offered it as a dower his burning throne where she should sit for men to gaze upon. The outside of her garments were of lawn, the lining purple silk with gilt stars drawn, her wide sleeves green and bordered with a grove where Venus in her naked glory strove to please the careless and disdainful eyes of proud Adonis that before her lies. Part of me loves to imagine Shakespeare hearing these lines and taking that Marlovian bit, the lining of hero's garment, and turning that into his own poem. Of course, it could have gone the other way, Marlowe hearing Shakespeare reciting his verse and compacting Shakespeare's great poem into the lining of his hero's garment. Either way, it's a wonderful story. Marlowe wrote one extraordinary poem, The Passionate Shepherd. And in many ways, it's the perfect poem, which is to say it rests there just to be heard and recited and admired. Come live with me and be my love, and we will all the pleasures prove that valleys, groves, hills, and fields, woods, or steepy mountain yields. And we will sit upon the rocks, seeing the shepherds feed their flocks by shallow rivers to whose falls melodious birds sing madrigals. And I will make thee beds of roses and a thousand fragrant posies, a cap of flowers and a kirtle embroidered all with leaves of myrtle, a gown made of the finest wool which from our pretty lambs we pull, fair lined slippers for the cold with buckles of the purest gold, a belt of straw and ivy buds with coral clasps and amber studs. And if these pleasures may thee move, come live with me and be my love. The shepherd's swains shall dance and sing for thy delight each May morning. If these delights thy mind may move, then live with me and be my love. That's just a perfect poem. And Marlowe himself couldn't leave it alone. I mean, it just invites parody. It just invites puncturing. Many later poets would try just that, including Shakespeare, as we'll hear in a minute. But it's important to remember that Marlowe, he was the first to puncture it, and he does so at the end of The Jew of Malta. And it's, it's a wonderful and very funny scene where Ithamore, that slave and sidekick to Barabbas, finds himself in a lap of a courtesan, Bellamira. And what does he begin to recite? Come live with me and be my love, and, <laughs> in a kind of throwaway. You knew he couldn't let it be. Shakespeare knew how good it was, and he pulls in snatches of this wonderful poem in the most unusual of places, in Act Three, Scene One of The Merry Wives of Windsor. And it's a scene that's often cut, but it's worth hearing here because it also tells part of the story of Shakespeare's engagement with Marlowe. Evans is about to be forced into a fight that he does not want. The Welsh parson is, is being compelled into a fight. And he's so nervous that, like all of us, his mind turns to snatches of poetry. 
And you'll hear two snatches of poetry interwoven here. One is that terrifying Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept, that sad one. And the other is, in a kind of hybrid sense, bits and pieces of Marlowe's The Passionate Shepherd, lifted out of context and put into the most wildly unexpected context imaginable. Jeshu, bless my soul. How full of colors I am and trembling of mind. I shall be glad if he have deceived me. How melancholy I am. I will nog his urinals about his knave's costard when I have good opportunities for the orc. Place my soul. Two shallow rivers to whose falls melodious birds sings madrigals. There will we make our beds of roses and a thousand fragrant posies. <laughs> Too shallow. Mercy on me. I have a great disposition to cry. <laughs> Melodious bird sings madrigals. <laughs> when as I sat in Babylon and a thousand vagrant posies Too shallow. Yonder, he is coming this way, Sir Hugh. He's welcome. Too shallow rivers, (laughs) to whose falls? Heaven prosper the right. Act four, where things get very, very interesting, with a trio of really extraordinary plays in conversation with each other. Marlowe's great Dr. Faustus, Edward II, and after that, Shakespeare's Richard II. As a kind of context or foil to what we're about to hear, I'll read a bit from one of my favorite critics on Marlowe and Shakespeare, Marge Garber, who wrote some years back about imagining Marlowe and Shakespeare busy playing what looks to be a game of cards. And here's what she describes. When we get a little closer, we can see that instead of cards, they're using plays. Each has a handful of quartos, octavos, and on Shakespeare's part, some sheets of folio. Marlowe plays first, and he puts down the Jew of Malta. The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare replies, laying down a quarto from his own hand. Dido, Queen of Carthage, says Marlowe. Anthony and Cleopatra, Shakespeare answers. Mm. Now, Marlowe, considering, puts down Edward II, Shakespeare immediately trumps him with Richard II. Dr. Faustus offers Marlowe in some desperation, but with a half-smile of triumph, a pause, and then Shakespeare says softly, Macbeth. (laughs) Marlowe takes a deep breath, looks through his depleted hand, finally speaks, Tamburlaine the Great, part one and part two. Shakespeare, with an apologetic smile, lays down his cards. Henry IV, part one, Henry IV, part two, and Henry V. (laughs) It's a great story, and I love even reading that. But it's not the full story. Because by the time Marlowe's writing Edward II, he's already familiar with Shakespeare's Henry VI. So that we now begin to see 
Shakespeare's influence on Marlowe as much as Marlowe's influence on Shakespeare. And in Edward II, we'll begin to see the way Marlowe takes on the challenge of describing a king, a feckless, weak king, a king who is not a Tamburlaine or a Henry V for that matter. We're going to listen to two speeches from Marlowe before, in a way, we'll get to hear in Shakespeare's Richard II, his almost symphonic response to these strands, these Marlovian strands. But even as we listen in the first scene to Edward II, try to hear the Shakespearean elements that have begun to find their way into Marlowe's play. And we'll begin with a scene from Act V of Edward II, very late in the play, when Edward has really discovered that he has lost his power and he's about to be deposed and soon destroyed by his rivals. Be patient, good my lord. Cease to lament. Lester, if gentle words might comfort me, thy speeches long ago had eased my sorrows. For kind and loving hast thou always been. The griefs of private men are soon allayed, but not of kings. The forest deer, being struck, runs to an herb that closeth up the wounds. But when the imperial lion's flesh is gored, he rends and tears it with his wrathful paw, and highly scorning that the lowly earth should drink his blood, mounts up into the air. And so it fares with me, whose dauntless mind the ambitious Mortimer would seek to curb. And that unnatural queen, false Isabel, that thus hath pent and mured me in a prison, full often am I soaring up to heaven to plain me to the gods against them both. But when I call to mind, I am a king. Methinks I should revenge me of the wrongs that Mortimer and Isabel have done. But what are kings when regiment is gone, but perfect shadows in a sunshine day? My nobles rule, I bear the name of king, I wear the crown, but am controlled by them, by Mortimer and my unconstant queen, who spots my nuptial bed with infamy, whilst I am lodged within this cave of care, where sorrow at my elbow still attends to company my heart with sad laments that bleeds within me for this strange exchange. But tell me, must I now resign my crown to make usurping Mortimer a king? Your grace mistakes. It is for England's good and princely Edward's right we crave the crown. No, tis for Mortimer, not Edward's head, for he's a lamb, encompassed by wolves, which in a moment will abridge his life. But if proud Mortimer do wear this crown, heavens turn it to a blaze of quenchless fire. My lord, why waste you thus the time away? They stay your answer. Will you yield your crown? Ah, Lester, weigh how hardly I can brook to lose my crown and kingdom without my cause to give ambitious Mortimer my right that like a mountain overwhelms my bliss in which extreme my mind here murdered is. But what the heavens appoint, I must obey. Here. Take my crown, the life of Edward II, 
Two kings in England cannot reign at once, but stay a while. Let me be king till night, that I may gaze upon this glittering crown. So shall my eyes receive their latest content, my head the latest honor due to it, and jointly both yield up their wished right. Continue. Ever thou celestial sun, let never silent night possess this clime. Stand still, you watches of the element. All times and seasons rest you at a stay that Edward may still be fair England's king. But day's bright beams doth vanish fast away, and needs I must resign my wished crown. Inhuman creatures, Nursed with tiger's milk, why gape you for your sovereign's overthrow? My diadem, I mean, and guiltless life. See, monsters, see. I'll wear my crown again. What, fear you not the fury of your king? But hapless Edward, thou art fondly led. They pass not for thy frowns, as late they did, but seeks to make a new elected king, which fills my mind with strange, despairing thoughts, which thoughts are martyred with endless torments. And in this torment, comfort find I none, but that I feel the crown upon my head, and therefore let me wear it yet a while. My lord, the parliament must have present news. And therefore say, will you resign or no? I'll not resign, but whilst I live, be king. Traitors, be gone, and join you with Mortimer. Elect, conspire, install, do what you will. Their blood and yours shall seal these treacheries. This answer will return, and so farewell. Call them again, my lord, and speak them fair, for if they go, the prince shall lose his right. Call thou them back. I have no power to speak. My lord, the king is willing to resign. If he be not... Let him choose. Oh, would I might. But heavens and earth conspire to make me miserable. Here, receive my crown. Receive it. No. These innocent hands of mine shall not be guilty of so foul a crime. He of you all that most desires my blood and will be called the murderer of a king, take it. What, are you moved? Pity you me? Then send for unrelenting Mortimer and Isabel, whose eyes being turned to steel will sooner sparkle fire than shed a tear. Yet, stay. For rather then I will look on them here. Here. Now, sweet God of heaven, make me despise this transitory pomp and sit for I enthronized in heaven. Come, death, and with thy fingers close my eyes, or if I live, let me forget myself. My Lord. Call me not Lord! Away out of my sight! Uh, pardon me. Grief makes me lunatic. Let not that Mortimer protect my son. More safety is there in a tiger's jaws than his embracements. Bear this to the queen, wet with my tears and dried again with sighs. If with the sight thereof she be not moved, return it back and dip it in my blood. 
commend me to my son and bid him rule better than I, yet how have I transgressed unless it be with too much clemency? And thus most humbly do we take our leave. Farewell. I know the next news that they bring will be my death, and welcome shall it be. To wretched men, death is felicity. Extraordinary, and extraordinary to think that Marlowe had arrived from Tamburlaine to a scene like that in such a short period of time. Before we go to Shakespeare's Richard II, I want to slice in one more piece of Marlowe, a shorter piece, but one which you will hear re-echo when we turn to Act Four of Shakespeare's play. And this is from the tragical history of Dr. Faustus, and it comes from very late in the play when Faustus asks Mephistopheles if he could see Helen of Troy, or a succubus who resembles Helen of Troy. You're all going to have to use your imagination for Helen here. We weren't able to bring one more actor in for this scene. <laughs> Let me bring Faust and Mephistopheles up, Faustus, for this extraordinary and haunting, no less haunting than Edward, scene. One thing, good servant, let me crave of thee, to glut the longing of my heart's desire that I might have unto my paramour that heavenly Helen which I saw of late, whose sweet embracings may extinguish clean these thoughts that do dissuade me from my vow and keep mine oath I made to Lucifer. Faustus, this, or what else thou shalt desire, shall be performed in the twinkling of an eye. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships? and burnt the topless towers of Ilium. Sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. Her lips suck forth my soul, see where it lies. Come, Helen, come, give me my soul again. Here will I dwell. For heaven be in these lips, and all is dross that is not Helena. I will be Paris, and for love of thee, instead of Troy, shall Wittenberg be sacked, and I will combat with weak Menelaus, and wear thy colors on my plumed crest. Yea, I will wound Achilles in the heel, and then return to Helen for a kiss. Oh, thou art fairer than the evening air, clad in the beauty of a thousand stars. Brighter art thou than flaming Jupiter when he appeared to hapless Semele. More lovely than the monarch of the sky in wanton Arethusa's azured arms, and none but thou shall be my paramour. That was beautiful. Keep those two plays and those speeches in mind as we turn to what we might describe as 
Shakespeare's most creative response to these strands of Marlowe in the deposition scene of, Henry the, of Richard II, the scene in which Richard gives up his, his crown from Act Four, scene one of that play. One of the things that I find most striking and would invite you to reflect on as you hear this scene, part of this scene enacted, is that in the early printed quartos of this play, at least all the quartos printed during the life of Queen Elizabeth, the scene you are about to hear was removed only after Queen Elizabeth's death was it published. It may be because Elizabeth herself famously, uh, reportedly said, I am Richard II, know ye not that. The scene you are about to hear is really a radioactive scene. It, it, it gives you a sense of how transgressive the deposition, the uncrowning of a monarch is. So we like to make that easy binary about Marlowe's transgressiveness and compared to Shakespeare's carefulness. But I think there's something that Shakespeare gets from Marlowe but fine tunes and is able to reproduce in a far more disturbing way as we'll see in the scene from Richard II, the deposition scene. Alack, why am I sent for to a king before I have shook off the regal thoughts wherewith I reigned? I hardly yet have learned to insinuate, flatter, bow, and bend my knee. Give sorrow leave a while to tutor me to this submission, yet I well remember the favors of these men. Were they not mine? Did they not sometimes cry, All hail to me? So Judas did to Christ, but he in twelve found truth in all but one, I in twelve thousand none. God save the king! Will no man say amen? Am I both priest and clerk? Well then, amen. God save the king! Although I be not he, and yet amen, if heaven do think him me. To do what service am I sent for hither? To do that office of thine own good will, which tired majesty did make thee offer, the resignation of thy state and crown to Henry Bolingbroke. Give me the crown. Here, cousin, seize the crown. Here, cousin. On this side, my hand, and on that side, thine. Now is this golden crown like a deep well that owes two buckets filling one another, the emptier ever dancing in the air, the other down, unseen and full of water, that bucket down and full of tears am I, drinking my griefs whilst you mount up on high. I thought you had been willing to resign. My crown I am, but still my griefs are mine. You may my glories and my state depose, but not my griefs. Still am I king of those. Part of your cares you give me with your crown. Your cares set up do not pluck my cares down. The cares I give I have, though given away. They tend the crown, yet still with me they stay. 
Are you contented to resign the crown? I know. No, I. For I must nothing be. Therefore, no. No. For I resign to thee. Now mark me how I will undo myself. I give this heavy weight from off my head and this unwieldy scepter from my hand, the pride of kingly sway from out my heart. With mine own tears, I wash away my balm. With mine own hands, I give away my crown. With mine own tongue, deny my sacred state. With mine own breath, release all duteous oaths, all pomp and majesty I do forswear. My manors, rents, revenues I forego, my acts, Decrees and statutes I deny. God pardon all oaths that are broke to me. God keep all vows unbroke are made to thee. Make me that nothing have with nothing grieved, and thou with all pleased that hast all achieved. Long mayst thou live in Richard's seat to sit, and soon lie Richard in an earthy pit. And send him many years of sunshine days. What more remains? No more but that you read these accusations and these grievous crimes committed by your person and your followers against the state and profit of this land. Must I do so? And must I ravel out my weaved-up follies? Gentle Northumberland, if thy offenses were upon record, would it not shame thee in so fair a troop to read a lecture of them? <laughs> if thou wouldst, there shouldst thou find one heinous article containing the deposing of a king and cracking the strong warrant of an oath marked with a blot, damned in the book of heaven. Nay, all of you that stand and look upon me whilst that my wretchedness doth bait myself, though some of you with Pilate wash your hands, showing an outward pity Yet you pilots here have delivered me to my sour cross. And water cannot wash away your sin. My lord. No lord of mine. Thou hot, insulting man. Nor no man's lord. I have no name, no title. No, not that name was given to me at the font, but tis usurped. Alack, the heavy day that I have worn so many winters out and know not now what name to call myself. Oh, that I were a mockery king of snow, standing before the sun of Bolingbroke to melt myself away in water drops. Good king, great king, and yet not greatly good. And if my word be sterling yet in England, let it command a mirror, hither straight, that it may show me what a face I have, since it is bankrupt of his majesty. Go, some of you, and fetch a looking-glass. Read o'er this paper while the glass doth come. Fiend, thou I... torments me ere I come to hell! Urge it no more, my lord Northumberland. The commons will not then be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. I'll read enough when I do see the very book indeed where all my sins are writ. And that's myself. Give me that glass. And therein will I read. No deeper wrinkles yet? 
hath sorrow struck so many blows upon this face of mine, and made no deeper wounds? No flattering glass, like to my followers in prosperity, thou dost beguile me. Was this face the face that every day under his household roof did keep ten thousand men? Was this the face that, like the sun, did make beholders wink? Is this the face which faced so many follies that was at last outfaced by Bolingbroke? As brittle glory shineth in this face, as brittle as the glory is the face. For there it is, cracked in an hundred shivers, mark Silent king, the moral of this sport, how soon my sorrow hath destroyed my face. The shadow of your sorrow hath destroyed the shadow of your face. Say that again. The shadow of my sorrow. <sighs> Let's see. It is very true. My grief lies all within. And these external manners of laments are merely shadows to the unseen grief that swells with silence in the tortured soul. There lies the substance. And I thank thee, King, for thy great bounty, that not only thou givest me cause to wail, but teachest me the way how to lament the cause. I'll beg one boon, and then be gone and trouble you no more. Shall I obtain it? Name it, fair cousin. Fair cousin? I am greater than a king. For when I was a king, my flatterers were then but subjects. Being now a subject, I have a king here to be my flatterer. Being so great, I have no need to beg. Yet, Ask. And shall I have? You shall. Then give me leave to go. Whither? Whither you will, so I were from your sights. Go, some of you. Convey him to the tower. Oh, good! Convey! Conveyors are you all that rise thus nimbly by a true king's fall. Act five, our final act, two speeches, both about Pyrrhus, the archetypal, unhesitating avenger of his father's death. I've told you before each of these speeches, whether it was written by Marlowe or Shakespeare, this time I won't. Let's just begin with one, afterwards I'll ask who you think it's by. The rugged Pyrrhus, he whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the knight resemble when he lay couched in the ominous horse, hath now this dread and black complexion smeared with heraldry more dismal. Head to foot, now is he total ghouls, horridly tricked with blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons baked and then pasted with the parching streets, 
that lend a tyrannous and damned light to their Lord's murder. Roasted in wrath and fire, and thus o'er sides with coagulate gore, with eyes like carbuncles, the hellish Pyrrhus, old grandsire Priam, seeks. Anon he finds him, striking too short at Greeks. His antique sword, rebellious to his arm, lies where it falls, repugnant to command. Unequal matched, Pyrrhus at Priam drives, in rage strikes wide, but the whiff and wind of his fell sword, the unnerved father falls. Then, senseless Ilium, seeming to feel this blow, with flaming top, stoops to his base, and with a hideous crash, takes prisoner Pyrrhus' ear. For lo, his sword, which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam, seemed in the air to stick. So, as a painted tyrant, Pyrrhus stood, and like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. But, as we often see, against some storm, a silence in the heavens, the rack stands still, the bold wind speechless, and the orb below as hush as death. Anon the dreadful thunder doth rend the region. So, after Pyrrhus' pause, aroused vengeance sets him new a work, and never did the Cyclops' hammers fall on Mars' armor forged for proof etern with less remorse than Pyrrhus' bleeding sword now falls on Priam. At two, scene two of Hamlet. But you're in good company if you guessed it was Marlowe. Edmund Malone, perhaps the greatest of 18th century Shakespeare editors, was the first to propose and then reject the argument that this scene, which is from the player's speech in Hamlet, was a Marlowian scrap that Shakespeare had lifted and put into his own play. Hamlet tells us that it's a speech he chiefly loved. And I suspect it was a speech that Shakespeare, too, had a great affection for. And we're going to end with that speech that Shakespeare is paying tribute to here, a speech from Marlowe's Dido, Queen of Carthage, from Act Two, Scene One. History gave Shakespeare the last word. Tonight, Marlowe gets it. At last came Pyrrhus. Fell and full of ire, his harness dropping blood. And on his spear, the mangled head of Priam's youngest son. And after him, his band of myrmidons with balls of wild fire in their murdering paws, which made the funeral flame that burnt fair Troy. All which hemmed me about, crying, this is he. My mother, Venus, jealous of my health, conveyed me from their crooked nets and bands, so I escaped the furious Pyrrhus' wrath, who then ran to the palace of the king. And at Jove's altar, finding Priamus, about whose withered neck hung Hecuba, folding his hand in hers, and jointly both beating their breasts and falling on the ground, he with his falchion's point raised up at once and with magirous eyes stared in their face, threatening a thousand deaths at every glance, to whom 
the aged king thus trembling spoke. Achilles' son, remember what I was. Father of fifty sons, but they are slain. Lord of my fortune, but my fortunes turned. King of this city, but my Troy is fired, and now I'm neither father, lord, nor king. Yet who so wretched but desires to live? Oh, let me live, great Neoptolemus. Not moved at all, but smiling at his tears, this butcher, whilst his hands were yet held up, treading upon his breast, struck off his hands at which the frantic queen leaped on his face and at his eyelids, hanging by the nails a little while, prolonged her husband's life. At last, the soldiers pulled her by the heels and swung her howling in the empty air, which sent an echo to the wounded king, whereat he lifted up his bedrid limbs and would have grappled with Achilles' son, forgetting both his want of strength and hands, which he, disdaining, whisked his sword about, and with the wind thereof the king fell down. Then from the navel to the throat at once he ripped old Priam, at whose latter gasp Jove's marvel statue gan to bend the brow as loathing Pyrrhus for this wicked act. Yet he, undaunted, took his father's flag and dipped it in the old king's chill, cold blood and then in triumph ran into the streets through which he could not pass for slaughtered men. So leaning on his sword, he stood stone still, viewing the fire wherewith rich Ilion burned. to Shakespeare Talks, brought to you by the Shakespeare Society and PlayShakespeare.com. Shakespeare Talks. <laughs>